Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch the Swamp Flicks We Love to Watch Christmas Spectacular. Uh, hi everyone! Hey, yeah, who's who's the host here? We got three hosts. We got three Black Christmases. We have three hosts. That's why all movies have three directors. It just makes for three times the good movie. I will claim ownership of this. I, I pitched this episode to have both of you on at the same time. You, you've both been guests on the Swampflix podcast before, separately. But I've also been on your show before, even more times than that. And um, I'm very excited to be the host for once and get the power of the final edit too, which is very important, you know? Oh yeah. That is a very important part of recording a podcast is who is editing. Um, it changes. I think Peter and I rotate editing duties and I do think like how loose I am with how much noise I'm making on microphone <laughs> and a lot of other things like depends on whether I'm editing. If I'm like, well, I have to deal with this shit. I can be a little lazier in it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm worse. <laughs> yeah, I was jangling when I was editing last my our, our Grinch episode, which will come out around the same time. Uh, I was jangling around ice like Frank Sinatra because I uh, I was like, well, I'm editing this one. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do wild hand motions while I talk. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Speaking of the Grinch, though, y'all are like currently doing the most cursed Christmas movies on we love to watch right now. Just a lot <laughs> yes. of stuff I have not seen like actively avoided just because they looked horrifically upsetting to someone who's not very fond to the holiday. Like I kind of avoid Christmas <laughs> content totally, but I'll make exceptions. Like, you know, I'll, I'll watch one or two movies a year, like something dignified, like a, the thin man or like uh, Batman returns or something. I'll like skirt the edges of the holiday, but we love to watch is going full on deep diving into like the lowest dregs of the holiday content this year. <laughs> Not only that, I would say, uh, and we are doing that. We, we always have done a Christmas theme month. Peter and I are, um, Christmas fans. And, uh, although the first movie we did Christmas with the cranks is, I think the first time that I've come close to hating Christmas in a long time. <laughs> um, it's a, it is a truly accursed. It almost movie, brandonized you. Peter and I, as a joke, on our podcast decided because we do a spooktober every year where we try to watch as many new to us horror movies during the course of October. Uh, and we brought in a, a guest of ours uh, that wasn't a horror fan, but was a Christmas movie fan weirdly to that. We did recaps and I think we watched like, you know, 80 to a hundred between, between Peter and myself and as a joke, we're like, since that was a ridiculous year, let's do a, <laughs> Try to watch as many new to us Christmas movies, a Chris Timber, if you will, between November 26th and December 25th. And I think it, it kind of started as a joke that we'll just do this. Uh, we'll record a 30 minute episode for the podcast. Peter, it's it's December 15th. I've watched 24 new to me Christmas movies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in uh, I'm in uh, I think 24 exactly as well <laughs> right now. Um, which is uh, disgusting. It's not charming at all. No, I'm I'm gonna hit thirty one. The, the the thing is that like I've I've been enjoying it, and this is something that Aaron and I talk a lot about. 
I've been enjoying it quite a bit. However, um, if you look at like the letterbox ratings, it looks like it's a, just a, a sheer, <laughs> it's really bad. Uh, and I, just a, a, a masochistic enterprise uh, because I'm giving most of them two or three stars <laughs> at best. And so it seems like I hate them. But the thing is, I'm like, if I watch this movie and it gave me a, a little jingle jangle of Christmas joy, um, I say jingle jangle because I just watched jingle jangle. Uh, it's validating, right? It like it fills me up. It fills up the meter just a little bit. Uh, though when I go to Letterboxd, I have to recognize like, no, this is not, <laughs> this is not worthy a worthy enterprise. No. When I decided to do a side miniseries in my watching, when I found out there was uh, twenty one Muppet related Christmas specials, uh, including like movies and made for television stuff with Sesame Street or completely unrelated stuff like a Leslie Nielsen Robert Downey Jr. Kermit the Frog adaptation of a different <laughs> children's book uh like Mr. McGillicuddy's Christmas Tree that happened in the <laughs> 90s so i kind of got like an, and an episode of the Ed Sullivan show that Jim Henson took over and just made a christmas special out of so like i did that and so there was there's 15 that i haven't seen and i've watched at this point 13 of the 15 that i'd never seen before uh so and so after i'm about to complete that and then kind of get back into the longer list that i made but uh, yeah, it's it's amazing when uh, the words challenge and movie list are put in front of me. <laughs> oh, I will uh, apparently just throw my entire life under the bus to focus on that. I can say without exaggeration that it would take me an entire decade to watch that amount of Christmas content. The amount that you've done in half a month. Um, <laughs> so I am impressed. Also a little horrified. I guess on Swamp Flicks, we're more in like the novelty horror post-Halloween haze still. Like, I haven't let that go yet. So our crossover energy on this episode is kind of like, we're doing, you know, specifically all of the Black Christmas movies. There's three versions of that film uh, over the decades. But mostly, like, the crossover there is, like, where horror meets Christmas, which is something y'all have done before as, like, an entire theme month. We're going to try to knock it out in one episode today. Yeah, it was the first, it was our first uh, December theme month we did on the show. We've been doing the show for five years, right, Aaron? Yeah. It was the first uh, December theme month we did was because we were just excited to to do it. And I, and we covered the first Black Christmas in that uh, because we're we're big fans of this weird little subgenre. And the subgenre is, for being pretty small, fairly fruitful, right? Yeah. Um, especially if you are a fan of the Christmas holiday, it's doubly fruitful because like if you get even like a little bit of subversive joy at the expense of something you love, uh, it's great. It's great. It's wonderful. Um, and these movies uh, in particular were kicked off by Bob Clark, who has these this wonderful distinction of creating <laughs> one of the most acidic, bleak, dark Christmas movies ever, ever, ever <laughs> Christmas movies ever made, which is Black Christmas. And but also a, a movie that like people watch literally on a 24 hour loop around Christmas time, uh, a Christmas story. And the funny thing is. They're not actually that far, as far apart as it would seem um, once you actually spend a, a little bit of time looking at Christmas Story. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to all that stuff. But yeah, that's that's why I think it was it was fun to talk about this series in particular, because it's a series that's great for people that uh, love Christmas movies and are uh, not particularly a fan. Well, and we did a we did a Shane Black Christmas movie month a few years ago, too. And Shane Black sets a lot of his movies at Christmas 
even if they're not quote unquote Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's talked about, I think we mentioned on the episode, he likes setting non holiday movies at Christmas time because it adds uh, an aesthetic that automatically brings certain feelings to everyone watching. Like you see a Santa hat, you see snow, uh, you see the Christmas tree up, you see a families in sweaters and something like that. And then you can put uh, action over that and it adds, um, aesthetic and a characterization you get a little bit of sense of what the characters are feeling because there's just such a nostalgia rooted in the holiday that like it he said that it saves him having to do that in in the (laughs) script like he basically is getting freebies by doing it and i will say like we like all the shane black uh christmas movies that we discussed and i i think it's true and i think for horror movies it's very easy to add that layer of like, oh, this is the worst time for an axe murderer to kill your family because because <laughs> you were just about to get your presents from Santa who turned out to be the axe murderer. <laughs> like it adds it adds something to it that like is almost ineffable, but still just like gives a feeling to the audience that. I don't think it's impossible to replicate. Like if whatever that specific feeling is that Christmas gives people sometimes for good and sometimes for ill, there's just nothing else that replicates that. I think that Shane black approach is definitely my sweet spot. Like the Christmas movies in name only, like I mentioned Batman (laughs) returns earlier is probably like my favorite Christmas time watch. I love tangerine, even though it's like a sunshiny movie, like there's just like a, underlying level of like sadness about like those events occurring on that day that stuff like really does speak to me and like kind of my low-key hostile approach to the holiday that comes around every year (laughs) but i think the horror stuff works for me as well in a different way where like horror in general i love the novelty of the medium like the way horror can take the most inane cultural touchstone and like exploit and extrapolate on that and build an entire movie around it really speaks to my like giddy trash loving sensibilities. Yeah. It, it's their, their sacred cows to slaughter, right? <laughs> well, just like, okay. Like some of my favorite horror movies sometimes are like um, killer object films, like, you know, the lift about the killer elevator or <laughs> this year, deer skin. Like it's, it's a movie about a killer um, deer skin jacket. That's like so cool. It inspires murder. So like your platonic ideal of a horror movie is a shirt that someone ordered off the internet that kills people. <laughs> have, have you seen in fabric yet? Oh yeah. Was, Peter yeah. Movie? I love that movie. Yeah. That seems exactly like a Brandon movie. And also that is exactly what you're talking about. You're just like, it's a killer dress movie. <laughs> that sounds very stupid. No, watch the movie. It's amazing. We talked about that when I was the guest that like, I couldn't, necessarily describe what a brandon movie is but when i see it i know and i agree that, <laughs> and, and like i agree that when yeah, yeah brandon's basically like the supreme court's definition of uh, obscenity <laughs> <laughs> like i can't describe it but i know it when i see it <laughs> that was definitely high on my like favorite films of last year and i'd say like my favorite christmas horror movies are kind of the same thing it's like the holiday itself is the driver for the mayhem like the iconography of christmas is used to murder people and like is a supernatural source of evil in itself so i'm, I'm kind of teeing this up just to ask y'all like in those episodes where you covered all these different christmas movies christmas horror films specifically and other slasher watching you might have done in your like free time 
Do y'all have like one movie you would recommend people check out in that genre? Absolutely. The one that immediately comes to mind, and it's and it's getting more of recognition now that it's on Shutter. This is why I want to talk about it right now because uh, it's finally easy to find. Um, is Christmas Evil. Uh, and, and, you know, this is very good for the, the Swamp Flicks listeners because Christmas Evil was recommended. At, I think John Waters said it was his favorite Christmas movie. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be on brand here. Um, and Nailed it. It's it's a sad character drama. It's also a deeply creepy horror movie. It's shot similar to the first Black Christmas with a sort of soft focus where the all the Christmas lights, like, th- th- they're not little dots of light. They're like... A, a warming aura that like fills the frame and uh yeah it's just a really like thoughtful strange indie little little christmas horror movie that like sticks with me to the point that i end up watching it every year even though it's kind of upsetting i almost checked that one out this year um because the word of mouth has gotten very strong on it all of a sudden yes i i, I bought it a few years ago through some whatever uh, vinegar syndrome or one of those like more more obscure labels and i was like i guess i'm the only person that loves christmas evil and it's so fun for me now <laughs> that more people are into this movie yeah, on Peter's recommendation, I watched it for the first time last year, and it, it's great. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, so my favorite is actually one that I recommended to Peter really hard, uh, and now I'm pretty evangelical about it after seeing it for the first time a couple years ago, which is uh, Better Watch Out. Oh, yes. So it, I don't want to, like, it has a very important turn that occurs in the movie that recontextualizes a lot of it. Uh, and takes it to a much different direction. Um, actually, a friend of ours that we I recommended it to, he said that like right as he was about to feel X thing, the movie pulled the rug out from underneath him. And all of a sudden he went, oh, it's this movie. Okay. And then kind of kept going with that. But essentially starts out, the I mean, the, the premise and the logline is it's an R-rated Home Alone where a kid is defending his house from burglars, but... Unlike the glossed over PG rating of Home Alone, where like, you know, he throws bricks off, you know, off of 10 stories and it bonks him on the head. (laughs) Um, It is, you know, that he is doing those same things with the gruesomeness that follows. Now, if that's the movie you're expecting, I have to tell you, you're going to be disappointed by the movie because that's not what it ultimately ends up being, even though that's a little bit present. So without ruining it. Uh, I cannot recommend it enough. It's it's definitely, I think it's my favorite, it's either Black Christmas or that is my favorite Christmas horror movie of all time. Like, I love that movie. I am planning to watch it Christmas Eve along with It's a Wonderful Life this year. It's a deeply prescient movie, too, in a way yeah. that, like, I think, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, I think is it, it is it's more successful in a specific way than the second Black Christmas remake is in talking about, like, gender issues in you know this this era so I, I i i'm a i'm a big fan of that movie i'm glad i watched it uh with, with aaron and it was a movie where i was watching the first 10 or 15 minutes and i was like uh, it's just one of those movies with like cool kills and nothing else going on for it and, and then it the twist happens and you're like nope this is this is a far more interesting beast we've got on our hands. Um, I'm gonna cheat brandon's structure and throw in one more as well um for a, a purely fun one that's like becoming just like a movie that I like watch with like my family now um is Anna and the Apocalypse. Oh yeah. 
I watched it with my mom last year, and she was, like, humming a song by the end, and she she was, like, looking away during the gore parts, but um, she was, she, like, Annie and the Apocalypse is one of those movies that, like, there's not a lot of great Christmas movies since 2000. That's one, I would argue, is a great just Christmas movie, but also is in the horror camp. And also is a really good example of if you're going to do kind of a joke musical as a premise, like, what if it's a Christmas zombie musical? If you make the music really good... <laughs> It's always going to be fine. Yes. I'm a little embarrassed to admit I gave that one a middling review. I did not enjoy it the way that most people do. Well, you Sorry, hate Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Might be part <laughs> of it. I did love the lesbian character. Uh, I, I can't remember the actor's name, but the sort of side character who hates Christmas. And I was like, oh, why, the mo- why isn't the movie about her? Uh, <laughs> well, I found my point of view character. Yeah. <laughs> I think like the thing about this um this subgenre of christmas horror that's most important and it was kind of like uh, hinting at is that like the reason that christmas horror hits so hard i think for folks it, it, that are willing to have that conversation um is because people that hate christmas people that love christmas they can admit uh, on one thing, and that's that Christmas is too fucking much, and it's too fucking much every year. And by the time <laughs> January comes, we're all we're all happy to move on from it for a little bit. Uh, it's just some of us end up getting excited about it again come you know October, November, and, and and that's why I like the subversions of the formula because like while I'm someone who who loves Christmas and I love even the cheesy parts of the holiday and the Hallmark movies and all that stuff, I do get I do like it's 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 it's, it's too much. It's it's not it's not uh I, the consumerism is too much the the expectations from your family and friends are too much like the the pressures are too much um and it kind of detracts from the stuff that I love about it to the point where it's like is it worth doing this every year and then I have some sort of weird uh, memory issues because every year I'm like well yeah it's fucking Christmas I love Christmas well I mean some of it is that we literally clockwork orange ourselves for both Halloween and <laughs> Christmas where we're just like ah. Any chance? I don't even have a chance to think about if I'm enjoying this. I gotta watch four movies tonight. <laughs> so I, I didn't really have a specific movie in mind when I asked you all this question. Um, but listening to your recent episodes where you were like talking about all these Christmas horrors and like <laughs> novelty Christmas movies you're watching, you did mention one that I really enjoyed when I watched it for this show like four years ago, and I rewatched it now because it's on Tubi. And like the clearest quality I've ever seen it. Uh, Brian Usna's Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation <laughs> from 1990. It, it is like the ideal, I think, of what I'm talking about. Like the Christmas movie that like resents the obligation of paying uh, its debt to the holiday. Like Brian Usna obviously had this script in a drawer for this lesbian death cult that worships bugs horror film <laughs> it's like a sister sequel to society in a lot of ways because he's also collaborating with screaming mad george again on these like grotesque bug creatures and there's these giant goopy orgies with the same viscous clear liquid that uh <laughs> drives the main um climax of the shunt in the shining as well the shining in uh <laughs> in society as well but in order to get funding for it he just used the slasher money-making machine of the Silent Night, Deadly Night series to get the movie off the ground. So this is a series about a killer Santa Claus figure. You know, it's, it's just a slasher where Santa Claus wheels a knife is like the entire premise of the whole series. And he just ignores that entirely, makes the movie about the bug cult, 
and inserts um, just a few Christmas scenes here or there to place it within the holiday. So, like, the lead is this Jewish woman who's non-religious and gives uh, a speech at her, like, father-in-law's house about how the holiday is just this pagan tradition that's been distorted and maybe busts through a couple office Christmas parties and other, like, settings where someone might be wearing a Santa hat in the background. But otherwise, Yusna just ignores the obligation entirely and does that Halloween 3 season of The Witch thing where, like, in the background on a television, they'll be playing one of the older sequels where there actually is a Santa killer that people probably paid to watch in the first place. Uh, (laughs) And I just love that kind of, like, complete disregard for the obligations of the format. And, yeah, that's the one I recommend the most. I've rewatched it. Uh, based on y'all bringing it back up. And I was like, oh, yeah, I still love this piece of shit. Uh. You know, it's funny. I, <laughs> I still haven't seen it because I bought the DVD back when you did your Usna retrospective uh, back like four years ago. Yeah, that was an inspiring episode. It was, I ended it, up buying it, a bunch, a bunch probably, of stuff from that. Yeah, probably <laughs> still my favorite episode that you guys have ever done. Um, just because I, I was... Like, I left that episode being like, okay, I got to track down this movie and this movie and this movie. But I decided to watch, even though I know it's unrelated, the Silent Night movies in order. And I stopped at one. Uh, I own two, three, and four. And I decided that this is the Christmas that I'm finally going to get to that one. Because I think I recommended it to someone in a mutual horror group, even though I hadn't seen it just going by your review and the fact that it was Brian Usna. It brings the shunt into the Yuletide season and you really can't. That's all I need. (laughs) Yeah. You really can't find that anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The family that shunts together sticks together. And the funny thing about all these recommendations is like, if we weren't already talking about black Christmas, that would be the film. That's probably would have showed up on at least one of our lists of the best of the season. (laughs) So we should probably get into talking about that. But yeah. So do you guys want to talk about, uh, no, don't you can't do a we love to watch transition. oh yeah we can't sorry sorry it's not what are my you show doing <laughs> <laughs> so we have to do the swamp flicks lead in it'll be uh yeah. yes all that's coming up to you right now <laughs> well the whole idea was to get the audiences deeply emotionally involved in the terror of the victims and the other thing that you didn't mention that this does is you are the camera and that is what they are looking at as they are being stalked or murdered or or even slightly scared from it. That makes you, the audience, involved directly. They look to you. They you, you are as closely identified with the effect of the murder as you can possibly be. We were just talking about Christmas time slashers in particular, and I think it's fairly safe to say that Black Christmas is like the original Christmas time slasher. Uh, it's from 1974 which puts it in that sweet spot before Halloween came out where everything could potentially be called a proto slasher. Like it's after peeping Tom and psycho and like all the jolly that came out in the sixties, but it's before slasher tropes were set in stone. Yeah. It came out the same year as Texas chainsaw massacre. Like they were released within months of each other. And even that one is a specifically like an American family that's like devolved in its own little hidey hole, which is like a whole other genre (laughs) to me than like, a masked killer wielding a kitchen knife and chasing down teenagers. And the way it's shot, it, it feels experimental at times, especially the opening shots of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Black Christmas feels like it neatly fits within horror history, but it has a sort of subversive quality 
um, with with its influence because uh, it almost gets lost in the conversation. Yeah, I know we'll get to it, but I, I would say like I do think. I mean, so much of so much of this movie is copied, like the opening first person view of the of the killer going through. I mean, that was you know that's it's in Halloween. Like this really did it. It didn't just I think you know help invent the to Brand's point the Christmas slasher, but just kind of the modern slasher as well. Um, but I also think that you know I was watching it again for this episode. I am hard pressed to think of a better slasher movie ending too. Like I just. I yeah. think I think it is the best slasher ending of all time. Well, it's in a sweet spot where the genre had not been fully set in stone, and it is like pioneering a lot of the tropes that would come later. Specifically with the Christmas stuff, like Silent Night, Deadly Night, or like Santa Slay or something. Like, sure, but also just in general, like you were saying, like the killer POV and like the final girl trope and things like that. But because those genre tropes weren't fully established yet it does things that are like still interesting with that formula that you will not see anywhere else so like to me there are like three very clear things that like stand out to me with this movie and one is like in general in slashers what usually happens is they become these like kind of body count fests where like yeah the killer kills like loose moraled women uh in this like kind of morally conservative subconscious uh way and they are just sort of like disposable bodies that you don't see. Like once they're killed, they're sort of swept aside to make room for the next kill. And this movie is very different in that way where like it starts with a murder of a woman in a sorority house among all her sisters. And the body just kind of hangs out for the rest of the film in this attic. And you keep going mm-hmm. back to that body and people are looking for her. And the grief of that initial kill just rots and piles up and just feels nastier and nastier as the movie goes on. And other things about the movie are interesting as well. Like the women in the house are dealing with, you know, their boyfriends trying to talk them out of having an abortion is like one of the main conflicts of the plot. They're also receiving these like nasty phone calls that is basically just like sexual harassment in the most like feral it's feral, but it's like boiling down to like the most essential state. Like it, it, it just is sexual harassment as a threat. Uh, and where all these women in the sorority house on their like Christmas break are listening to phone calls as a group where this like hideous audio is playing. And I, I think that's like the most upsetting things in this movie is just listening to this man gargle and spit and just howl and whoop over the phone. And all these women are listening to him get off on their terror Director Bob Clark. He was doing the audio himself. I didn't even know that. No, he was getting off on the terror. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Both. Uh, yes, Bob Clark provided the, Director Bob Clark provided the uh, the male voices. Um, an unnamed member of the cast, um, one of the, the sorority sisters, provided the um, vocals for the woman's voice during these numerous phone calls. I completely agree as well that the the calls are the scariest part of the movie up until the end. Yeah, because they don't feel like the normal lewd, like, heavy breathing. It feels like it's getting beamed in from a horror movie. Like, a separate horror movie where something grotesque and despicable is occurring is getting, like, beamed into these phone calls that these, you know, these uh, sorority sisters are picking up and being like, what is this? Because they're not talking to... The people, they're not making lewd comments at them. They're just expressing uh, grotesque lewdness 
via telephone call that they're sending to this sorority. And, like, you do – since there is – I mean, it's especially odd because there's two people, to Peter's point, actually making voices and talking over each other on some parts of the calls, too. And it, it does – even, like, recognizing – to some respect, like, where this whole movie ends up. It is like, well, okay, well, how was he talking over himself during these phone calls? Was it, uh, you know, some of his victims that he has that he's calling? You know, the the unclearness and the unsolvable mystery part of it makes them very eerie and disturbing. So at the core of that, though, like, it's playing off this urban legend where, like, the gag at the end of that series of phone calls is, you know, the cops catch the trace of where the call is coming from and they tell the final girl like the call is coming from inside the house you have to get out which that is a very basic horror premise to build like an entire killer on the loose movie around but the actual like in the moment effect of those phone calls is something much eerier and more upsetting and difficult to pinpoint Mm -hmm. in a way that really sticks with you the same way that like routinely revisiting that body in the attic is upsetting in a very unusual way for what the genre would become Yes, yes, you're right. The The body count thing does not quite uh, parse with this film as sort of an ur text for slashers where every death is sort of, almost every death, I should say, is almost lamented over and it, it hangs heavy over the audience in a way that like they're not just, these women are not murdered and disposed of in the minds of the audience as well like they would be in the Friday the 13th movies. They're murdered and can't quite be disposed of. Um, because the killer can't quite let go of either his guilt or his satisfaction uh, from these killings. So we see the, his first-person perspective just stalking the attic and at times screaming, which is super disturbing. Because this is a movie that, that inspired John Carpenter to make Halloween. Obviously, this the first-person perspective stuff was inspired by Gialli. But the, the, especially the gloves <laughs> to hide the because Gialli are very mystery focused, right? They're they're supposed to be mystery murder thrillers, and it's actually my least favorite thing about uh, Gialli movies. Giallo. You don't like cold hands. <laughs> I, I don't give a shit about murder mysteries. I'm sorry. I, don't, I just don't. I never will. To be fair, I don't think Jolly are like very interested in the murder mystery part of their <laughs> uh, plots either. Like they're just about the style. <laughs> it's it's just annoying at the end of the movie for them to be like, and the killer was Bart, and you're just like, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. Who cares? <laughs> uh, I guess I, I guess now I have to listen to this guy ramble on about how his mother was mean to him or whatever. So going back to that, so Giallo movies inspired Bob Clark clearly. Bob Clark made this movie, uh, heavily influenced uh, John Carpenter. Uh, So, uh, yes, I pre-wrote this. You could say that while Christmas gave birth to one JC, you could say Black Christmas gave birth to a different JC. Boo! (laughs) Get out! (laughs) Um, But my point is that this guy, this Brandon, you were talking about that there's uh, unique elements to this film that aren't actually tracked forward the tragedies of the death but the other thing is this screaming raving protagonist who's loud and vocal that was something that john carpenter uh, opted to not use and halloween is one of my favorite movies john carpenter is my favorite director but it has an extra disturbing quality because it adds to this sort of sexual menace this this feral quality and then jumping to what aaron said the fact that the movie has no true resolution and it ends in a, a fake sort of red herring resolution. Yeah. Is, to me, 
an improvement on the giallo genre um, and taking us into the future of slashers. So that is absolutely my my favorite parts of this movie. And the movie is good all the way around. Is it's a ninety yes. minute movie, and for the first seventy five minutes of the movie, no one knows there's a murderer. Like no one. You know, the the scary part about horror movies is the idea of people living their lives and then some force, whether it be a supernatural force or a monster or a killer, invades the normal drama of their life. And typically, in a horror movie, that is set up in the first act or the first 20 minutes. And then it's all these people that are dealing with... You know, uh, to Brandon, to your point about like now people start becoming disposable. We met all their names. We know this one likes to fuck. This one's never fucked. This one likes school. This one throws the football well, like the cabin in the woods. You know, you meet all them, you know, a tiny bit about them. And then uh, they start getting picked off. This is a movie where for the first 75 minutes of a 90 minute movie, no one knows there's a killer on the loose. And so you are just living their lives. You're living the life of... You know, the people that are having problem with their boyfriend and are pregnant and the drunk who's wondering about missing their friends and the, the dad who's stuck at the sorority house while they search for his daughter and stuff like that. And like, you know, worried boyfriends and trips to the police to, to file missing person reports. And it really, you know, oh, and then maybe they're in the lake. We'll do a search party. But there's never this sense that there is... Besides, like, Margot, uh, Margot Kidder's character wondering, there's got to be something else going on here. Do they really understand, oh, there's a killer murdering people. But to what extent? That's the other thing. They never find out. The The movie ends with, you know, a little unclear whether they, who they think is the killer at the end, which is fine. But they think that they the killer is either dead or they caught her. And, you know, they scratch their head. And that's it. Like the the quote unquote mystery from the movie character's perspective is solved. We as the audience know that uh, actually the real killer is still on the loose. We still have no idea who the fuck he is. And the, there's still two dead bodies, two or three dead bodies in the attic that you never found. And now uh, one more person is in this house while the police uh, keeping watch are on the outside. And, uh, you know, your mind just goes to uh, maybe something is going to happen next. Maybe nothing is going to happen next. Maybe a year from now something's going to happen. Like, nothing's resolved. Nothing's solved. The characters had hours to realize there was a killer. And then they think they they fixed it. <laughs> yeah, they, they dope her and then they walk away. <laughs> yeah. None of that is pulled forward at all that I can remember from any other slasher movie and that's why it is truly horrifying like the characters just the characters never understand the extent of what the audience knows at any point in the movie and yes we're all used to the slasher movie of oh shit michael myers or you know jason was lying right there and now he's gone dun 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 for the next sequel but we never, we, I, I can't think of another slasher movie where they never even understand that the killer was there, who they killed, who he is, whether he's on the loose, like nothing. They don't, they don't know anything. We don't, we don't know if Billy is, we don't know anything about Billy. We don't know if Billy is, is a man, if Billy is a demon, if Billy is. Billy's the name. We don't know. We don't know if Billy's the name. We don't know. We don't know anything. Well, I love the way that communicates with like Jalo tropes you know we're just talking about how Jalo movies don't care about the mystery very much it's just kind of like an obligation for the style to hang off of like 
Bob Clark's kind of pushing that to its furthest extreme. If you're not going to care about the reveal of the mystery very much and it's just an obligation, why do it at all? Like the more important part is that this killer that is stalking and harassing these women, your mind is going to draw parallels to the men at the periphery of their life. So the boyfriend that is pressuring his girlfriend to like keep her baby, the father who's this like moralistic force who like snubs his nose at these girls having like an erotic imagination and a sex life, even though they're Mm -hmm. adults, like him, like morally uh, wagging his finger at them. That is sort of paralleled with the killer. And then you have all these cops who are also like attracted to these women and not really protecting them, like doing their basic jobs more or less. The movie is making you think about the way all the male characters in the movie are at the periphery of these women's lives and how much of a threat that is. And because you never get to know who the killer is, that threat is not resolved. The women who survive the film still have to deal with that same predation uh, as it goes on past the end credits. And that's way creepier than like the mask being revealed. And you're like, Oh no, it was Jimmy the whole time. Yes. You're a hundred percent right. I think the only movie that is kind of effective at that that I can think of, I'm sure there's more, but like in the post-slasher, the post-Black Christmas era is Scream, which feels like it's drawing its like killer inspiration from here, where, you know, the guy that kind of looks like Malcolm McDowell, who's the boyfriend. <laughs> Sorry, I, I forget the actor's name. Skeet Ulrich? Um, no, in, in Black oh, Christmas. Oh, 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 yeah, I don't know that. I know, I know Skeet Ulrich. Oh, of course. Oh, um, <laughs> Keir Dahlia? Yeah, um, uh, yeah, but he he is kind of like the... I mean, everyone in the movie thinks that he's he's done it, uh, and it's it's suspicious. And you kind of like you probably the first time you watch it are like, it's it's gonna be, it's gonna be Peter. Like, how could it not be Peter? Peters <laughs> are suspicious. Um, <laughs> and then you know, it turns out to not be. But that that has big scream energy. Where like the, you're like, it's Skeet Ulrich. Like it's definitely Billy Loomis. And they do a whole thing where, like, oh, it couldn't have been him. And, like, uh, and you're like, oh, fuck, it really seems like it's him, though. You know? You're taking me exactly where I want to go, though, Aaron, yeah. which is Bob Clark was a very social, socially aware um, left-leaning filmmaker. And he made uh, his first big horror movie. He made, chil- uh, was it Children Shouldn't Play Here or Dead Children Shouldn't Play Here or whatever? Uh, children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, yes. Bad movie, great life advice. Yeah, <laughs> great life advice. His first notable horror movie, I think, is is uh, Death Dream, um, which is about a Vietnam vet coming home and just essentially uh, being a zombie um, he came, he did die in the war. He came home. His family doesn't want to admit that he died. And it's entirely about the cost of Vietnam. It's a film that is is deeply, deeply empathetic. And this shows Bob Clark's sympathies, which is like, it's not with showing those commies who's boss. His sympathies are with these fucking working class families that get stuck with the bill when conservative forces decide to enact their will on the nation. And then... Um, you jump to Black Christmas, which is uh, a Canadian production, and Black Christmas is very much about how <laughs> you could call you could call Peter a red herring. You could, um, and that kind of boxes him in in a way that like the film isn't. Uh, it's limiting to the film. He's he's more than a red herring because Peter's 
hunting down of his girlfriend, Olivia Hussey, <laughs> the way he breaks that basement window to get to her, and the fact that he's he's smashing a piano and he's freaking out when she tries to get an abortion and he doesn't want her to have an abortion. The film is very much about how men exact their will on women, and women are not taken seriously when they report their trauma, report threats of violence, all of that. And the end of the movie... You know, I think from uh, if you were watching this movie without any sort of of a a vision of gender studies or you watching it purely as just sort of a white man in 2020 with no real um, perspective on this issue, you would say, oh, that sucks that she killed her boyfriend. She she was so scared. She was so paranoid. She killed her boyfriend. That's so sad. (laughs) The truth is, Peter might have been a second threat. Yeah. He's He was acting erratic. He was following her creepily through a dark basement after smashing the window of their house. Like, her, her her reacting with violence, you know, obviously she thought Peter was Billy one and one. But that doesn't mean Peter wasn't a threat. He wasn't necessarily a red herring in a pure sense. Yeah, he's not absolved by that reveal at all. Like, he's just as bad. Or at least the movie constantly draws parallels between the two sets of behavior to the point where at the end, like you have no sympathy for that character and you're just as scared of him as you are of the guy in the attic. Exactly. And there's also this sort of periphery thing with um, a little girl getting murdered and you're not totally sure if that's Billy or just unrelated male violence. And that's Bob Clark for you, right? Like he's making you a horror movie, but he's also injecting this idea that like women's humanity matters and he's trying to make the film from the perspective of the women and you're supposed to be frustrated in the same manner the women are frustrated and you also made christmas story which has the same sort of soft focus beauty that this movie has and it's very interesting watching the movies close together by the way and christmas story is a movie that i quite love but it's a movie that's been kind of hammered into just like an easy mold it's a movie about how christmas is great Christmas Story is a movie about how the the conflict between consumerism is fairly vile and um, America's love of guns is somewhat creepy and America's love of violence is creepy. Um, however, that's in contrast to the fact that like it, it's kind of nice when children get to be happy for Christmas. Like children get to like look forward to something and have this like beautiful resolution. And the movie is about that. It, it's sort of sarcastically about that conflict that, you know, consumerism sucks and Christmas is often just about like this glitzy consumption. Uh, however, like at the end of the day, children fall asleep clutching their Red Rider BB guns with the biggest smile on their, their face that you've seen the whole fucking movie. Like, well, and that's their, their imagination, you. like, the the reason why he wants it is not to play with his friends. He imagines his home being accosted by robbers and him getting to murder <laughs> all the robbers that yeah. come there. Like, they have X's on their eyes. And I will, like, I, I didn't show my, my uh, for fans of We Love to Watch, I have a, I have a six-year-old daughter. She actually likes horror movies. We watched Krampus this year. She loved it. She had more. Um, she had more things she was scared about watching Christmas Story than she did watching Krampus. Or I would even guess if I showed her Black Christmas, which I will not be doing. There's just too much to get into for a six year old. <laughs> did you know you need to be scared of men? <laughs> but I, I think. Well, I think some of that stuff, like uh, you know, abortion. Like I think some of the stuff there would go overhead because she doesn't necessarily 
understand the uh, sexual power dynamics that are at play in Black Christmas. You need to justify this, Aaron. Innocence has value. We trust. No, you. no, no. But what I'm saying is like why, <laughs> but why she was horrified by parts of a Christmas story is you're basically watching parents abuse their children throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, have the kids sit there with the soap because they said a bad word. Or, like, and then uh, the mom calls that other boy's mother and you just hear him being violently beaten. What did you say? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Everyone's, like, uh, kind of scared of physical threats from the dad to the point that uh, the mom lies about how he broke his glasses for fear of, like, my dad is going to kill me and not, like, as a euphemism, but, like, going to beat me. And, like, that was, like, she wanted to talk about that stuff and, like, talk about the violence and pr- made me promise uh, that I would never do these things to her. And I was, like, which led to a bigger conversation uh, about, like, why I would. But, like, you're watching that and you're, like... And she's like, well, so are they bad guys? You know, because she still has that six-year-old mentality of like, well, are, are they are these parents bad guys? And it's like, oof, that is one complicated answer, kiddo. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer that. Well, you see, all people you know, even the people you trust, are capable of doing bad things. <laughs> I know. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, kind of. They are bad guys in a lot of ways. And we've had a lot more of those conversations and something I don't want to get into with, like, her own grandparents and some of the things that they believe. And, like, you know, they can be good grandparents and bad people. Oh, <laughs> so, no. But it, it's so funny, like, it's not funny, but, like, Christmas Story, all those moments are not viewed from a comedy standpoint. They are, they are viewed from, and again, watching it closely, they're viewed from the Black Christmas horrific standpoint. Like, that idea of a kid having to go to see this Santa that doesn't give a shit about stuff and no parental supervision, and then we're literally going to kick you down a slide. Like, it may be funny as people like, uh, oh, I remember my childhood, but it is filmed and it's depicted by the characters in that movie as a as a horrific event. These movies have way more DNA than I think I would have ever thought just from my hazy memory of A Christmas Story, which I think is generally fine but not great. Yeah, I, I, I'm quite fond of the movie, but like, I, I think what you're getting at here is the same thing I'm getting at, which is that like Christmas Story is a far more complicated movie, but the quick consumption of Christmas movies over a 24-hour period or, you know, you put it on while you're, you're doing other activities, uh, it hammers out the complicated, rough, loose ends of the product into something easily digestible. But yeah, Bob Clark knew what he was doing with all this shit. But the thing is, Black Christmas, uh, because it's a horror movie and because horror movies are intended to be abrasive uh, and cynical in some senses, we we allow space for its messaging. Um, and so, yeah, like what else do we have to say about Black Christmas? Like it, it is a it is a singular ass film, but I don't want to. I don't want to take away time from the the remakes as well. I will say there are two remakes that might as well be in name only because they call back to this film, but they are their own distinct works. And I think we will get more into what makes the 1974 film like distinct just through comparison because you can't help but compare the choices and where the the, uh, remakes deviate 
which um, is kind of the best kind of remake, you know, like respecting the original's yeah. legacy and then building off in your own tangent. Absolutely agreed. Yeah. And which is not true of a lot of remakes of this era. A lot of remakes of this era are like, what if we did it? But hold on. There's a break. These scenes. are not um, Platinum Dune remakes. No. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, and I was uh, I was actually really surprised about that. I know Black Christmas 2006 has a terrible reputation as like mm-hmm. one of the worst of these quote unquote like mid two thousands platinum dunes extreme horror remix uh, remakes of all all your favorites uh, and I I never watched it as a result because that's a specific era of horror for the most part that unless someone says actually this is worth watching um, I haven't given it up enough mind and I've never heard that for a two thousand six Black Christmas so I was really surprised by the pedigree involved when I did a little research before I started watching it because. You have Bob Clark, who's an executive producer and helping to influence how this can take this his idea in a different direction and working with the screenwriters. And it's uh, directed by two people that did some of my favorite X-Files episodes of all time. And the one from last year, uh, Black Christmas 2019, was directed by Sophia Takal. And that one has an yeah. even worse reputation somehow. And none of the bile is deserved on either front. Like, there's no such thing as a bad Black Christmas movie so far. Yeah, there's Black... If you want If you're like, look, I want to make a movie that's good, name it Black Christmas. Because so far, the track record has been impeccable. Why are you allowed to say all this shit about men and we're supposed to just sit here and take it? Because men have all the power. Not all men have power. Did you just not all men me? Did you just not all men are rapists, Chris? Okay, I'm not. But you just lumped me in with the bad ones because I'm a man. Nobody is calling you a rapist. What? With your man hating? Man hating? What did I say that was so offensive? Just calm down. We're trying to have a reference. Calm down? You want me to calm down? Let's calm down. down. You're hysterical. Jesus! Oh my god! So, we've both covered the original Black Christmas before, respectively. We already talked about y'all did a podcast episode on that, and I'll try to link that in the show notes. I've reviewed the movie for the website before, but much more recently, I think in like 2018 was the first time I saw Black Christmas, and I did not know that the film had been remade in 2006. That was like new information to me. (laughs) I'm wondering if this is the first time y'all have seen the 2006 version as well. Yeah, it was the first time. Yeah, I, I had heard nothing but bad things, and I was like, why why pay 4 to $8 to <laughs> experience something that will hurt me? Well, and just that, 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 as I said before the break, like, that is like one of the worst eras for mainstream horror movies. And when, and someone, when, when something has, like, an average of a star from your friends on Letterboxd, you're like, why would I do that to myself? Yeah, and it's a Dimension movie um, in an era where they were just mining properties. They were not interested in uh, <laughs> being respectful to the original subject material. They were jer- they were jerking around Wes Craven. They were jerking around uh, people, Kevin Williamson. They were jerking around like the new, the old guys, the new guys, anybody because Harvey Weinstein, uh, both Weinstein brothers were uh, fucking monsters. And um, Dimension slashers from this era were particularly bland looking overlit in particular what are some other titles oh man the prom night remake (laughs) yeah the prom night remake the one thing that i'm going to talk about a little bit is um the rob zombie remake of uh halloween oof because that's a movie 
that I'm not, I'm, a, I'm actually a fairly uh, big Rob Zombie fan as far as that goes, uh, despite the fact that I've hated his last two movies. And they made a Halloween remake similar to this, where they were like, we need to explain everything about Michael Myers. And not to, I mean, I guess we should just get into it. I like the origin parts of the Halloween remake so much more Me than the rest of the movie. Yeah. And I like the origin half of Black Christmas so much more than the rest of the movie. That's not the angle I'm coming at this from. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. <laughs> That's fine. Do I do agree with you, Peter. I'm, I'm, and I'm interested to get into it. But I was like, I thought this was going to be a no-name director that you'd never heard of. I mentioned it before the break. Like, it's James Wong and, and Glenn Morgan who directed it with the, again, with the help and script ideas of Bob Clark, who was not involved in the 2019 one, which we'll talk about in a sec, because he had died at that point, or died before that point. And uh, I wasn't laughing at that. I was I was laughing at the idea of him dying at the point that they said they were going to remake the 2019 one. That was the nail in the coffin. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm, I'm yeah, not he laughing. He died at right either. after the, the 2006 one came out. So he actually was murdered by the 2006 one. <laughs> he was, but they blamed it on Peter, weirdly enough. And uh, yeah, so I like I don't know. Were you guys X-Files fans at all? I mean, yeah, that was like a major touchstone in my childhood for sure. <laughs> that like guided my taste as a kid. Me too. And it was um, it was a show that was very difficult. We didn't have cable and Fox wasn't part of like the basic, the network package in North Dakota where I grew up. So it was one of those things like I had to like convince friends to record it for me and, you know, watch it houses. I saw the movie in theaters. I was just like really enthralled by the show but really didn't get a proper way to see it all until they started releasing the dvd sets when i was in college and i you know bought them all and consumed them all and you know kind of had my x-files obsession drag on for a long time and so finding out it was like two of the most consistent x-files writers and directors i was like oh interesting and then finding out that bob clark had involvement was encouraging the backstory like hey don't remake my movie but here's how you can make some things interesting that i touched on go into that and i do agree with peter i think that the way they went into that is theoretically something that if you just told me outright i wouldn't like because it feels like real edgelord nonsense stuff but the way it's portrayed and how horrifying it is and the way it's shot and the implications from these moments and where it ultimately goes i was super into like i really liked it and i just want to toss in there really quickly like this was a movie that looks like every other bad movie the dimension was making at the time dimension made some hellraiser sequels they made another sequel to the crow they made the amityville horror remake which also sucks like they were pumping out bad sequels left and right yeah because they because they did they were i mean dimension did scream and a lot of those movies so they were kind of like they were in the classic we started the trend and now we're making bad movies off that trend yeah like the best movie they made in this this period was probably the grindhouse movies or this um but they also made an absolutely horrific remake and not in a good way uh of pulse which is uh one of the best j-horror movies ever made um and they they decided to absolutely step on it so this was not a good year uh for dimension films again 
to reiterate, a, a film company ran by the worst people. <laughs> Who we'll talk about probably at some point kind of fucked up this movie, according to the director. So yes. many movies they fucked up, seemingly out of spite and for no reason whatsoever other than control. Um, <laughs> but I want to borrow a word that Aaron used last time you were on the show when we talked about the monkey's head. Uh, you talked about maximalism as a concept. Yeah. And to me, that is what drives this Black Christmas 2006 is maximalism. Like there is so much plot and backstory and ideas and just in the moment tangents and visual gags that are thrown at the screen in this movie to the point where the story is not really what jumps out to me. It's more just like the amount of excess on the screen that like won me over here. It's kind of got the same basic set up as the original Black Christmas in that it's a sorority house on their Christmas break that are being hunted by an anonymous killer who is calling in over the um, phone to make lewd phone calls. The killer does not remain anonymous in the same way that they do in the original film. We get way more backstory on like why they're killing these women, why that house specifically. Yeah, well, all the sorority sisters are like, they their Christmas celebration is built around the legend of this killer. So what I found really funny about that, like in contrast to the Bob Clark original, is that we were just praising how much that movie like sets up all these genre tropes, but does not adhere to them strictly. The Black Christmas 2006 is so dedicated to both making this concept like a more traditional slasher and making it more Christmassy in a traditional sense to like the furthest extreme in both criteria. This movie is so much more like Halloween than it is like the original Black Christmas. Like the killer is an escaped mental patient that is returning to his childhood home to like yes. uh, recreate yeah. his like previous murders of his family. And also it's like so Christmassy in like a novelty slasher sense that the original Black Christmas isn't. Where like there's a lengthy gift exchange at the beginning where the girls like sort of trade stories of this like escaped killer. Um, there's a kill that's like Christmas cookie cutters like carved into flesh and those flesh is like baked in the oven. There's so many good like Chris Christmas iconography kills. Exactly. Like icicles, ice skates, someone's impaled on a Christmas tree. Like every touchstone of the holiday that can be weaponized is. And then on top of all that excess, you have all this extra plot thrown in where even like the twists in that extra plot I feel like very rooted in slasher tradition it's one of those things where you cannot reference um, specific movies because it spoils those movies every time but like <laughs> there is someone living in the walls who's always been in that house is like a slasher trope in its own way um, it's a very frustrating genre to discuss because you don't want to ruin that surprise in like various examples. I know exactly what movie you're talking about. I'm though. thinking of at least five different ones. <laughs> Brandon, all I have to say is you're my boy for mentioning that movie. <laughs> that is one of them for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually think we're closer on the backstory part um, than you may think, Brandon, because part of the reason why I really like that is that maximalism sense, right? Yes. It, is, it isn't a point of trauma. <laughs> It is, and they keep going back to this to Billy's life. It is touching on the most taboo 
regressive things over and over and over again. And it's it's a pileup effect that I actually started to appreciate. Like the part where he finally and this is only like 30 minutes into the movie and I know uh, your podcast is a little more uh, spoiler adverse than ours. Oh, I, so I'll just say I like, say go for it. Spoil the fuck out of this Okay. Movie. Okay, good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> someone, if someone is really upset, I guess, about spoiling 2006's Black Christmas, I, I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I assure you it won't ruin the movie to know what happens. But it kind of, like, it starts in that, like, abused child, child called it thing. Like, the mom just doesn't like her kid, abuses the shit out of him, keeps in the attic. That's, like, one level of classic horror movie trope right and then there's there's an incest component where this kid is like eight and the mom has sex with him and produces a child from it which is like really starting to get into this like holy shit like you know it's piling abuse on top of abuse and then when billy finally cracks and like kills his mom and his stepdad and like in this vicious way like he cooks them and makes cookies out of them. And then him and his sister daughter are like become cannibals. And it like, it just keeps this being this like thing of like, we're not going to have like the one trope. Like it's a, it's a child abuse, rape, incest, cannibal background that this kid grew up with. And it's like, what else is there from a regressive taboo horror trope? Like I, I honestly can't think of anything I appreciated, I guess, the audacity to some extent and or the maximalism of just like, yeah, they really went for like, Billy's not doing well. <laughs> this, like they went yeah. for every possible thing and it's done. It's it's definitely not done in a comedy. Like, I really appreciate the way that those scenes are shot. They're shot. They look like they're from the 80s. They have a different sense than the rest of the movie from a cinematography and a visual standpoint. And I really appreciate that the, at the very least, like I could see why hearing that someone would go, Oh, this movie's not for me. And that would make sense. That, that tracks. I get that. But I will say that it's not played for laughs and it really feels horrific. It's upsetting. It's very upsetting in a way that I think one of the one of the areas that these platinum dudes this this era of horror movie fucked up a lot and why i am so generally turned off by most of it even though i i gen i don't have a problem in in most cases with uh even like torture porn or or violence or gruesomeness or stuff like that um desensitized watch a lot of horror movies it doesn't bother me what bothers me when i watch those movies is there's a sense of like pornographic coolness that the movie is trying to portray in a lot of cases like you watch like that texas chainsaw one it's like like it's slow motion and it's like look how fucking cool this is that this guy's like skin and dick got ripped off with this barbed wire and you're like yeah i don't think you're giving the proper tone to it so it's not the fact that the guy's you know dick gets ripped off by barbed wire that bothers me it's the fact that the the movie seems to be luxuriated in a way that like i think most good horror movies know not to do and at the very least i think you can say about this movie that it treats all of the moments with their proper level of oh my god holy shit like this fucking kid like how could this be worse it is truly scary from the sense of not maybe not like scared like i had trouble sleeping but scary from the sense of like you are empathizing with this like horrific existence 
that this character has gone through. So I, I, I think that's why... I mean, the movie, I gave it three out of five stars. It's not like an instant classic or something. But I think I think that's ultimately why the movie works for me, because I was impressed by the level of depravity it went to without feeling like it was laughing or luxuriating it or doing like an edgelord. Look how fucking cool this is. I think what's funny about that or like what's effective about that is that it's doing that within a familiar post scream, like slickly produced slasher aesthetic. Like this feels like the mm-hmm. kind of like, I know what you did last Christmas, like thing you would yeah. expect around that time. And like the kind of bullshit I frankly grew up with, like I'm trying to think of other examples, like the faculty or um, urban, legend. urban legend, disturbing behavior. I don't know. Like those like teaching Mrs. Tingle. Yeah, there's like big cursed. teen stars Who's in these going? like slickly produced slashers around that time. There is kind of like a safeness that you know what to expect from them. Yeah. And this brings in the nastier transgressive 1970s like upsetting bullshit <laughs> like that people had like <laughs> kind of gotten past, but I guess like um, torture porn and sort of brought that back to the screen and like marries those two eras together in this like really upsetting way. And then on top of that, you have all that like Christmas time novelty and it, like the maximalism of it is really where, where I get hung up where it's like, that is what I like about this is it's like so many things that should not be sharing the screen at the same time. And the combination of them is like way more impressive and way more upsetting than I expected out of something like this. Yeah, like, Michelle Trachtenberg shouldn't be in this movie, right? Like, she should be in the safe movie that you're describing. And and just based on, like, the cast of this movie is in those, like, disturbing behavior, scream-type movies where the most horrific thing that happens is, like, someone tells a sad story, and then there's gore on screen. And that's not to dismiss those. I like some of those movies. I like Scream. I like Urban Legend. Like, I, I find those amusing, but yeah, like the level of depravity is not meant for this cast, this tone, even yeah. just the idea of this uh, a remake of a 70s horror movie. Like nothing matches and it is truly surprising. It's rare that I watch a horror movie and feel and feel surprised over and over again by how horrific they're going. And I definitely ex- didn't expect that to be fucking the Black Christmas movie from 2006. Yeah. This is a movie where the origin story overpowers the, the, the central narrative in the same way that happens with the Halloween remake. Where, like, by the time we get to the, the modern day narrative, I, I, I just feel bad for that little boy that now is a big boy and doing <laughs> big boy murders. So it, it doesn't quite click as, like, a, you know, an, a half and half film. It's just the way the Rob Zombie remake doesn't quite click. But it does work as two completely separate movies <laughs> that, ha- that happen to be hanging out with each other. Uh, before we move on to the next one, the, t- the two things that are probably worth a little bit of discussion is the adult casting choice for his sister, because the other twist of this movie, spoil, 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 is uh, his. it's not just Billy, it's Billy and I think Agnes, right? Yes, his sister Agnes. What's really interesting, so we didn't really talk about this, the phone calls in the original the 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 female sounding voice and the male sounding voice call each other Billy and Agnes and there's obviously we don't meet those characters in the movie and I really like I don't think it's like supposed to be there was there was a moment though where I was like is this a sequel is this supposed to be like the Billy and Agnes origin story and they were involved and it's not but I do think it's interesting that they're like 
okay, well, we heard Billy and Agnes in this phone call. If we're going to remake it, let's use those names for something different. So Agnes as an, as an adult, so she's part of it. Like they, after they murdered their, well, one of their parents, I guess, um, their shared parent um, and and the boyfriend um, and eight, eight people, they, you know, Billy ended up going to asylum. Agnes stayed there. So Agnes is actually doing most of the calls and has a typical, like, more masculine voice. And the way that they deal with that is just very odd in a way that we were actually talking about before we started recording, which is Agnes as a child is played by a, uh, a cis female actor and as an adult is played by a, a male playing a woman, but not as a trans character, as a, I think we said like a kids in the hall or a, like it's, it's not supposed to even be like a man playing a woman. It's just supposed to be a, a woman with a, with a more aggressive physicality. I don't know. And, and a deeper voice and the way they accomplish that. And I guess to save the twist of it being two people as opposed to one is have that woman character played by a man. Uh, it's 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 an odd choice. I don't think any of us could be the authority on the morality no. of that. If if there is any like overt trans misogyny there, it's like they're casting a male, a cis male actor to play an ugly woman, which you know, yeah, with a deep voice, which is odd. Which they barely show the face of. Right? Yeah, she's barely in the film, really. But it, it's like it's gross, but it's gross in a specifically 1970s grindhouse kind of way. Yeah, which sort of like you know hints to how the film approaches this like crossover between different eras of horror filmmaking in general. <laughs> it feels like this movie was your. That's that's actually really true, Brandon. Like yeah. it feels like this movie was equal parts inspired by. The original Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre ripoffs. I would also throw in the uh, the House on Sorority Row. This film is so yes. similar to that. It also feels like a little bit like to solve a plot hole, they do bizarre casting. Like <laughs> That's what it feels like. It feels like we don't want our plot holes questioned. So, yeah, this is what she looks like and as an adult. That's why you thought it was Billy doing those things, because the masculine shadow was played by a a cis man, even though it's it's a woman, it reminds me a little bit in a different way, Peter, of Burial Ground is a movie where they decided to have a subplot where a kid is having sex with a mom or like they have a very inappropriate parent-child relationship. And the way they get around, I guess, all of the gross shit they're going to do in that movie... <laughs> And it is some gross shit. Uh, I saw it with a packed theater at uh, Dismember the Alamo. And I had already seen it. And I only enjoyed rewatching it for the sake of what the audience was about to get into. <laughs> um, and the audience did not disappoint in there. What? But uh, they they get around it by having it played by a little person who is pretending to be a 10-year-old boy. It's quite a it's quite a bit, and, and you're, uh, the silence is fair, but it feels yeah, a little. I was bit, just processing that. Yeah, <laughs> it feels a little bit like he was not playing a like he wasn't playing a little person adult. It's like they're like, well, we want to have this very disturbing, unnecessary subplot. We can't cast a ten year old for the scenes we're about to shoot, so we're gonna get around that 
So with Burial Ground, it's a horror movie with also a, a, a production horror movie behind the yeah. scenes as well. Yeah, but they're like playing off the same like social discomfort and like the thing that we're like, you're supposed to find that grotesque in a way that's like amoral and like probably not for the best. And uh, <laughs> I think horror has a way of doing that in general, like even just the sort of like escaped mental patient yeah. Plot point that drives a lot of slashers in general. Like that's not a great starting point for a no. story. And you kind of have to put up with that kind of transgression sometimes to get to the good stuff in the genre. And yeah. you know, black Christmas 2006 is a great example of that. If nothing else, like this is a gross slimy movie that oversteps its bounds in every way possible and yet I walked away from it like really positive on its like yeah overall just like slick style and just its willingness to like get into the griminess of its genre um, instead of like you know being wary of getting its hands dirty. Yeah, and I wanna I wanna jump back real quickly. I just want to talk about Brandon. You touched on earlier some of the Christmassy kills, and I would say this movie uh, has a particular honor. Before I, I say that. I think one problem with this movie is it's really poorly edited. Like the gore <laughs> it's so confusing. is like, oh, it's overly cut. There's no sense of place. There's a lack of texture. I think that hurts this movie from rising above a three out of five. But what gets it to this like fun three out of five, just like, hey, this gave me the slasher joys I need is I think this movie has mo the most Christmassy kills I've ever seen outside of a movie outside of like maybe Santa Slay with Goldberg in it. <laughs> or Krampus is a pretty good one in that front. Krampus is a really good one. Yeah. It's just like usually these Christmas horror movies, it's like, well, they just end up. Someone gets killed by a Christmas tree. Not with <laughs> yeah. a Christmas tree. Yeah. The, yeah. Billy is impaled on a Christmas tree. And then there's a rolling there's a rolling pin murder after you know it's still got the flower of someone uh, bake, uh, making cookies with it. Um, there's a, a bunch of light string kills, I believe, which is also in the sequel. Um, there's a few kills that are uh, involving a long sharp ornament. There's the cookie cutter kills that you mentioned earlier, Brandon. Throats getting slashed by ice skates is in there in the mix. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this is a movie that was like, well, we're making a Christmas horror movie it's legally required that every kill be related to Christmas in some manner. And I have so much respect for that because like, even when, you know, you're not super attached to the characters, you're like, I have all of these objects in this room right now. <laughs> like that's, it's, it's, it's I can uh, kill it's, people 30 ways and I didn't even know it. <laughs> like that's, that's pretty crazy to me that like every, every kill is in some way, uh, there's an ice scraper kill. Which is fun for us from the Midwest. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's nice that the movie actually took a moment to put some thought into how can we commit this horrible crime with something Christmassy. So, really quick, you mentioned the treetop horror kill, and I, I want to talk a little bit about why that is in the movie. Because, Peter, I can never imagine us, even though I like this movie, revisiting this in any capacity. So, we got to get it out now. So that was not in the movie. The, the movie ended a little bit more paying homage to the original that you think people are dead and they disappear and they get away. Um, as opposed to both Agnes and Billy being killed at the hospital at the end. The reason that was changed is because the Weinsteins didn't like the original ending. They took it away. They re-edited some of the movie. They uh, shot a whole different ending uh, without the director's uh, approval. They also did... Something that you only hear about as like these 
half remembered fever dreams of previews that you saw. They did the thing where they shot a bunch of scenes because for the previews for this movie. And the directors were furious about it and felt like that was partly responsible for why this movie had a really bad uh, Cinescore. Because it positioned a movie that didn't exist. So, uh, never intended to be used. So, those include a whole different character uh, <laughs> played by Jillian Murray, who's not in the movie, being discovered uh, floating beneath a frozen lake. A lawnmower electric Christmas light thing that kills people. Uh, Lacey Chabray being dragged through the snow. People falling off roofs. And my favorite, which is Michelle uh, Trachtenberg aiming a shotgun at the camera and saying Merry Christmas, motherfucker, with the fucker edited out. Uh, None of those things appear anyway in the movie. Most of the actual trailer is not in the movie at all. Including, again, featuring people that are not in the movie at all. And uh, they feel like that really sunk the movie from an audience perspective, from a Cinescore perspective, and also felt like all this stuff that they had worked on, who are, again, two talented people working with Bob Clark, had kind of ruined the movie. Now, I would say that the movie is still overall a success. As always, I don't know which one would be better or worse, but, like... The fucking shoots a bunch of footage just for the trailer thing is like the stuff I heard about Highlander Endgame. <laughs> well, you know, that's not like a relic from the past either. Look, that that no. is a very specific circumstance of the next film we're going to talk about as well. It's like studio interference um, from the from yes. Bloomhouse in, in this case, not from Weinstein, who is in jail. And possibly died of COVID as we talk right now. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, Christmas miracle. We can only hope. <laughs> I have a I have a crazy idea I just came up with. They should have the editors guild should put aside money every year providing uh, directors cuts of movies that the Weinstein's fucked in their time. That if it's possible to get the footage back, you pay these editors, uh, you know, whatever the, whatever they want to be paid to go back and fix the movies that uh, that that the Weinstein's fucked. That seems like a good use of of editors' guild money, right? I feel like uh, Snowpiercer was the last time I got really angry about something like that. Just like hearing about the ways they wanted to reshape that film yeah. for an American audience. Or it's like, it's the fucking 2010s. We all know what you're doing. We see it. We we hear about it. Like, yeah. It's, it's in public yeah, now. Like, especially when like Ain't It Cool News or whatever gets to see the movie like nine months before anyone else. And then, and then we all see it and we're like, where's that weird scene with the ice chipper or whatever? <laughs> so last year... There was a Friday the 13th date in December. Okay? Follow me on this. Bloomhouse <laughs> noticed that release date as like a potential moneymaker. And they know that Black Christmas is a franchise that is for rent. Like you can use that name to make your own remake for relatively cheap. So they rushed into production early last year a Black Christmas remake to be released on Friday the 13th. They tapped Sophia Tikal to direct it. Um, I, I know her from Always Shine. I know that she also directed one of the more beloved Into the Darks uh, episodes for Hulu. New Year, New You. I, I did not particularly like Always Shine myself, but I've heard great things about the New Year, New You movie. It's on my, my Christmas scary list. I need to watch that. No better time of the year than to watch it right now, I suppose. So they tapped her to write and direct this movie and to release it by December of last year. And she's like, I do not have the time to do that. That is an impossible task. So she tapped April Wolf, who is a podcaster for the Switchblade Sisters pod, 
which if you have any um, affinity for the kind of genre enthusiasm we talk about on our two shows, Switchblade Sisters is required listening. Like April Wolf does the real work. Great show. Way better than ours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she actually knows what she's doing in, in a like academic sense. Her research is like she called the producers and ours are like we read what she wrote on Wikipedia. <laughs> that is exactly accurate. <laughs> um, so within, I think, a week or two, April Wolf pounded out the script for like a Black Christmas remake to rush for this like Friday the 13th deadline in December last year. And the way that the original film sort of avoided scrutiny because it was before slashers were a thing and it was just a sort of like low budget can exploitation picture and the way that the 2006 remake was like kind of pre scrutiny, like because it was pre internet, just like constant discourse black Christmas 2019 could not avoid either of those things. This is a film no. written and directed by women that was from the beginning sabotaged by the men funding the movie and the men on the internet commenting on its very existence. Uh, it was one of those movies that had a campaign to attack the IMDb ratings before it came out, which, uh, you know, I'll definitely blame uh, a lot of toxic men and garbage men and all that kind of stuff. Uh, IMDb and like, I haven't figured out, I mean, I, I don't need to figure out, I don't run these fucking websites, <laughs> but IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic user reviews and all of these things, even Letterboxd for that matter, needs to figure out a way to, for people to not be able to rate shit that hasn't come out for months. Um, this movie went into theaters with a 3.1 rating before anyone had ever seen it. And, you know, still sits at a 4.2, which is, I think, on the IMDb's bottom 100 movies of all time. Which is... Yeah, insane. It's, it's completely asinine because this is a, yeah. like, fairly standard slasher in a lot of ways that just happens to have this like political satirical bent um specifically lampooning campus rape culture and i think maybe um more to my like my southern eyes than maybe y'all would relate to but like the take them down movement that's like about dismantling um the statues of the confederacy yeah. I didn't even think about that yeah, yeah. that is wow. that is such a specific new orleans thing that a couple of years ago, we had a lot of like outside people from elsewhere in the South come here. I mean, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a very um, progressive city in the middle of like a deeply red um, area <laughs> where like people come here with guns to protect statues. Hey, from welcome being, to Minnesota. Yeah. Too, <laughs> well, there way. you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people are like protecting statues with automatic weapons from being taken down by the people who actually live here, who want them gone. Um, it's a very contentious, political issue here and the movie tackles that but more specifically it, it tackles like rape culture by making it literal and it has like a tongue-in-cheek kind of subversive humor about both of those hot political issues and the online commentariat and the men funding the movie and the mpaa who decides like what movies get distributed to what people we're all so heavily weighing in on what this movie was allowed to say and what tone it was allowed to say it, that it never really had a chance to stand on its own. And it's so hard mm -hmm. to talk about it on its own terms without acknowledging all of that baggage that like, I'm very frustrated by the idea of talking about this movie 
Um, and I feel like it cannot be fully assessed until like maybe five or 10 years after now, like even a year later talking about it, it feels like I'm not fully out of the haze of the discourse. Yeah. And in this year in particular, my spirit was broken in this kind of things with the movie cuties completely unrelated to any Christmas horror discussion, but the movie cuties and the confluence of that with like QAnon discourse just broke my brain where I don't want to engage with anyone I don't already know and trust online about any movie whatsoever. I mean, I think that's a good rule of thumb regardless. Right. But I feel like I was like more confident about that kind of thing before this year. And if a year ago, if I had seen Black Christmas and originally came out, I would I probably would have had my spirit broken at that time instead. Because much like the 2006 film, this is very much its own thing. It's taking a, Very a lot of the iconography of the original, but like reconfiguring it into this like, you know, in some ways it is like continuing what Bob Clark did with the original where it's like talking about how women are like being predated on by like every man in their life from like all directions. But in this case, it, it has like a more a lighter tongue in cheek tone while still acknowledging how heavy that subject is. And it just can't do that without all of this outside scrutiny, cutting it at the kneecaps at every possible opportunity. And I just like, I walked away thinking like, this is a good slasher movie with like a specific point of view, especially like after watching the 2006 one, which is a scatterbrained film that has no ideology whatsoever. And just sort of throws every idea at the screen. Like this is a very focused film written, produced, directed within a very short period of time. And it does a fairly good job of lampooning like MRA alpha male culture and like how women feel in the current climate of like men's right activist bullshit. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed a lot of the same like Christmas time slasher stuff that this does. That's kind of common across all three of these movies. But I also thought it was a really fun kind of light on its feet satire that has been weighed down by a bunch of things that are not its fault. You're, you're so right. And I'm glad we are starting here because like, I think it's important that we end on what we like about the movie. Um, because I, I do think it's important where you, we acknowledge the amount of shit that Sophia Tikal and April Wolf got and women in general in the horror world got, and then move beyond it. Because like, I want to redirect the conversation to what this movie actually accomplishes with it, 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 its um limited scope. I wish I was prepared to do that. Like, I feel like it's so weighed down by that stuff. And like, I just wish I was in the era still when I can encounter this movie in the wild and not know anything about it going in and not thinking yeah. the entire time, yeah. like, how could someone misconstrue this in this way? Like, I wish that, you know, ghoulish chud behavior was just like not even in my <laughs> mind whatsoever. Yes. So, yes. Uh, so there's a couple things just on that note. I wanted to mention. So first I made the, when I watched the movie, there's a few things that felt, uh, MPAA, we need to get a PG 13 rating. They cut away from some moments that I think would have been more powerful. If they wouldn't have cut away, I made an assumption about the MPAA and Blumhouse or whatever else taking this and making a PG 13 movie, just watching it that felt like, Oh, why would you handicap it that way? Reading about it, though, I found out, uh, and I don't know if you guys knew this, that uh, Tikal actually wanted it to be PG-13. That was her goal. She thought she wanted to make a movie 
specifically targeted to the type of women that don't have movies made about them that are these horror movies where people you know that people go see at ages 13 14 and 15 where every girl is portrayed as a victim and uh and even you know one lucky gets out and wanted to redirect that so she was prepared to release it as an r rating if the mpa was shitty about it was able to get it as a pg-13 movie well that's not quite as cut and dry if you listen to april wolf talk about it she was on um this podcast called scarred for life where she kind of like tiptoed around the issue because you know there's probably like some ndas involved where she can't fully explain what happened fair (laughs) she also doesn't want to fuck up her very early screenwriting career but from what i gather the choice on whether or not to make this r-rated or pg-13 was constant on blumhouse's side I'm sure Takal had like a specific vision in mind, but Bloomhouse was like toying with what they wanted. And if you look at the final product, the violence in it is so clearly within the bounds of a PG-13 film. Like it, it should easily pass with flying colors in that respect. But what the MPAA more objected to was the frank discussions of campus rape that the movie discusses fearlessly and head on. Yeah. And that was more of the battle, I from what I gather, is not the on-screen violence, but like even uttering the word rape itself and like speaking about that issue that does directly affect so many teenage women, like that is enough for the MPAA to say, "Oh, well no, that's for adult audiences. That's an R-rated film." And but it did end up getting a PG-13. Yes. Right? I'm I'm not dismissing anything that you're saying, and I haven't heard this April Wolf discussion, so it's not. I'm not saying that. Like when I watched it, at the very least, like I didn't have that in mind, and I was actually impressed with the level of violence and the level of specificity they were able to get into on campus rape culture and the cover-ups. It feels very much like it's not beating around the bush. And actually, the thing I liked most about something that Peter and I talk about and we love to watch all the time that like subtly is overrated in satire. And oh, totally. I think it's sometimes extremely important to hit people on the head. And this movie goes out of its way, I think, to hit people on the head over and over. And I think it was incorrectly dismissed by a lot of critics, even potentially, I hate the term well-meaning, I just can't think of a synonym because it's late. But like people, you know, whatever you want to call that were like, oh, I love its message, but it was a little bit too inelegant in its portrayal. And it's like, you know what? I fucking loved it because any, like, to get to what whatever ended up happening at the rating, to get to Call's point, is, like, I don't want anyone seeing this movie to miss what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. We live in an unsubtle era. Like, yeah, I don't know, it, like, why do we need to, why do we need to have this sort of elitist bonding to uh, subtext when... Uh, you're making a mass market horror movie yeah. that can easily easily be misinterpreted by the worst people on the planet. A hundred percent. And really quick, like why I think that's so important and why I think the criticism of well-meaning and poor meaning or whatever you want to call it, like is fucking bullshit is the idea that like everyone gets the message. You have to be more subtle or ironic or bury it in there is bullshit in an era where people are <laughs> admit to rape on camera are credibly accused of rape. And you still have hundreds of thousands of fucking dumbass MRA assholes 
defend them. So, like, where do you need to have subtlety in a world where someone goes, I raped someone, and everyone goes, everyone makes mistakes. Like, this is not, like, a sensitive issue that no one's talking about. This isn't, like, and I'm not saying, excusing this, but, like, this isn't, like, a fucking Star Trek from the 60s satire where it's like no one's talk. everyone hypothetically agrees racism is bad but no one can talk about racism on tv so we're going to do this clever take on people whose faces are painted reverse to show the silliness of it like this is a culture where people are saying i was raped and other people are saying to those people i don't care even when the people are openly saying that they did these things the idea that we need a subtle satire to address that is bullshit. And I think the genius of this movie, and I'll stop talking, and I'm going to spoil it right now, so get out if you want to see it first, because it does have an amazing third act twist that I had no idea was coming, is their entire plot, this supernatural plot that comes from the blood of this statue that possesses men to go back to their roots and everything like that, it's, it's a common horror trope, this diabolical plot by an evil demon force And everything they're outlining of their plan and everything they're doing is not supernatural. They're just outlining the patriarchy and the world as it basically exists today. Because from a woman's perspective, why else would it feel like the entire system has been built brick by brick against them? And why does it feel like every man, including the boyfriend in this movie... Every man ends up falling into some sort of pitfall on some level of the patriarchy. Like, why is that every even even, quote unquote, the good ones <laughs> end up stepping in uh, in these these pitfalls? Well, that's the thing. It has a supernatural explanation, but it's just true that, like, the more men are the more men are around other men, it increases like toxicity overall like men being around men and and even in like an innocuous fact fashion ultimately increases the overall toxicity level as they as stay um away from other points of view and other other people but the point i want to drill home is that i love how so carrie elwes who ends up being like the person who's doing all this stuff he is doing the common bond villain supernatural villain horror villain thing of doing these non-debatable evil things. He's he's possessing people. He's having people drink the blood of the eyes of this this statue and uh, having their blood replaced to these black blood that's possessing and stuff like that. All this iconography that anyone watching the movie who has seen a movie recognizes evil. And then his big plan isn't like a fucking Bond villain, like we're going to steal Fort Knox or we're going to do X or Y or we're going to bring about the apocalypse. It's going to be like, we're going to keep the status quo. <laughs> and I and I think that's fucking genius. I really do. Yeah. Like the movie is like, a you know, it, it's not quite to the Black Christmas level. It has some areas that you can tell was kind of cut short of time. But I think the idea of having this unambiguous supervillain evil machinations and the plot being let's just keep things the way things have been for millennia is a master stroke and i think that's probably why people were so uncomfortable with it because he wasn't advocating let's murder all babies or you know let's let's shoot children in the face or something he's just like let's just you know, everyone just keep vibing the way we have as a, as a patriarchal society. And I can, that is a threat. Something that's this unambiguous 
and this portrayed as evil, it's bullshit and it makes me angry in the same way that you're describing it, Brandon. But I get it because it is a fuck you. I want to be very clear with what I'm saying here. And all the right people got pissed off, unfortunately, in a way uh, that damaged the actual movie. Like, there is no political subtext here. Like, it's political hypertext. And what it's specifically doing that separates it from the other two films is, like, it's turning rape culture into, like, a literal thing. Yeah. They are a cult that, like, worships Mm -hmm. campus rape, more or less. But that's the thing. You remove the supernatural element, and nothing actually changes to our real world. Like, sure, they're drinking the blood and they're killing people. Even that's not necessarily out of the realm of what is happening sometimes on college campuses and then being defended by the same people in power that are protect, uh, whether it's the policeman or the dean or teachers or other people that are supposed to keep everyone on their campus safe. Yeah, the biases and the structures. Yeah. Yeah, but the, but there's no difference. Like, there is no difference whether this was happening or not happening. And obviously, this is probably not happening because I don't think these supernatural <laughs> elements exist. It is happening in this exact same way, drinking the blood of the statue. Or but not. what I think is like not given enough credit from the people who are like instantly detract from that is like how playful that is and like how funny mm-hmm. it is. Like it's mocking macho dog whistle culture. Like, the, okay, one of the red flags for the boyfriend character before he's like turned over is that he's like wearing a Cosby sweater. It's like a visual gag that like he can be turned. Um, Because there's, like, this visual representation of rape on the screen that's, like, a visual joke. And, like, when the um, one, like, kind of woke boyfriend um, is turned by this, like, occultist dog whistle that transforms, like, the average man into, like, an MRA, as soon as he is turned, he starts using this, like, very weaponized, like, internet discourse you're being hysterical yeah he says not all men he says calm down like all the exact phrases you would want to hear and like the movie is kind of openly poking fun at how ridiculous and over the top that culture is you know while also reckoning with how gross and like actually violent and upsetting it is at the same time and this is stuff that's that he can get from a youtube video right like it doesn't it doesn't have to necessarily be in real life it would be, he he could get it from a jordan peterson video or a ben shapiro video or whatever or like other non men just fucking worms right. um that that have poisoned the ear of of uh, decent people but I, but i think that moment is so goddamn important though because It is this idea of him, like, he has a girlfriend in the group, and he's accepted in this group, and he's one of the good ones, and he tries to emphasize that, right? Like, he's like, well, hey, I'm so sick of you guys being shitty to men. Like, I'm your boyfriend. Don't you love me? And, like, again, missing the point of literally millions of men online. And the movie's like, actually, the second he is faced with a challenge... He becomes as shitty as everyone else. Like, he he wasn't one of the good ones. He was one of the ones that was benefiting from pretending to be one of the good ones. And the thing that, like, really won me over for that is, like, that kind of upsetting the status quo satire is actually represented in the film itself with the novelty song Up in the Frat House, which yeah. is uh, making fun of, you know, Up on the Rooftop, where, like, they're calling out rape culture to men who have actually assaulted them before in person and getting live negative feedback back from them. So like the movie is so aware of what it's doing and so aware of how playful it's being with like touchy subjects. I don't know. I just found it impressively 
smart and how it's considered from a satirical standpoint and just like how quickly that came together. We're like, this is not the bloom house that funded get out. This is the bloom house that funded truth or dare. Like this is a novelty horror film that was rushed in production. And like these two women creators, like were able to sneak in these like subversive jabs at like macho rape culture. I don't know. Well, there's this great little moment where, so Imogen Poots is the main character and her, her thing is that she had been raped by this frat boy and she accused him of rape and no one really believed her. Except for her like core group of women friends. Like no one, no one truly like took it seriously. Yeah. And so she's known as the person who, tried to ruin this upstanding frat boy's reputation by accusing him of rape. And there's a part where she is at the frat house with her friends and she walks by this room and one of her friends is about to be raped. Uh, She's had too much to drink. The frat boy is like starting to pull off all of her clothes and, and pull off his clothes. And she's like hey is everything okay you know does that kind of you know i don't i want to act innocuous in here because of the of the inherent threat of violence that this person poses uh, but i need to get my friend out of this situation and this friend is uh, or this this frat boy is annoyed that of course that his rape was interrupted and then as he's walking out yells at imogen poops for being a liar and knowing this friend and saying Uh, You know, I know that guy. He would have never done anything like that. He was a good guy. And it's like, this is a scene where a rapist is interrupted right before he's about to rape someone. The character then comes in and stops him and she gets accused of lying about rape. Like, that is such a, like, complex, like, this is a person in the process of committing a rape who then accuses someone else of this person would never knew it. He's a good guy. He would never rape someone. You were about to rape someone. (laughs) That idea of like good guy being separate from the actions of someone is like, I think the inherent problem with everything, like this idea that a good person exists outside of anything people have done is how rape culture permutates. Like in our, you know, that idea of the, the swim fucker or whatever he was, like just one guy who made a mistake. Yeah, the mistake was raping a passed out person. Like it's not a mistake. He does deserve to have his life affected by that beyond just like a slap on the wrist or all these other things. Like... Um, a good person doesn't rape someone. So those are conflicting ideas. And um, I think there's, I think that's a little moment that could easily get missed. That is like the microcosm of how, how sharp of a satire and a shotgun blast this movie can be. Yeah. And like, I think it's probably good to put a little asterisk here that like, I had some problems with like the jokes or like little references because like, it feels like they're just tapping into what Twitter was two years ago. <laughs> like the moment when the, the boyfriend starts to be converted, she's like, I didn't know you liked beer. He's like, I like beer. And you're like, that's an SNL joke. <laughs> like <laughs> there's little jokes and references in there that you're like, you're like, okay, like if the script had a little bit more time to cook, this would have felt better. But overall, I think the actual direction of the movie is quite stunning 
there's references to older horror movies, not just Black Christmas, that I find genuinely, like, jaw-dropping. Like, I, I, I love, there's an amazing reference to Exorcist 3 in here. Did you guys catch that? No. I haven't seen Exorcist. 3. Oh, it's so good. Okay, so Ex- <laughs> yes. Exorcist Three is so fucking good. So there's a ju- there's the best jump scare of all time is in Exorcist Three. Um, without spoiling too much of it, because it's a jump scare it needs to work. There's a hallway. You're watching a very still shot of it, and then all of a sudden somebody comes from off screen and uh, murders somebody, and then the camera cuts away to somewhere else, and it's just it's it wakes you up. Um, it sort of lulls you into sen- a sense of just like, all right, well, I'm feeling the, the sense of space. I'm feeling the sense of, of place. And then all of a sudden, uh, a character runs into the left. Of, there's a shot of a character who's about to go away for the um, uh, winter break. Uh, she's going home for Hanukkah and she's looking for her cat. And the cat is, you know, bouncing around and she's looking all over. She looks in a room. She doesn't see him. And then all of a sudden from one of the side rooms one of the masked men who they wear these black cool like masks i like cult shit in movies so this really worked for me injecting suspiria dna into this movie was really cool (laughs) um this character decides to uh, this character marches into the shot and throws a string of christmas lights around uh the sorority sister's neck and then the camera cuts away sec almost seconds later then i don't know 10 minutes later um there's a shot we're seeing uh sort of a, a spectator shot a drone shot almost of our main character emojin poots walking down the street and then the camera sort of backs up a little bit and then cranes down and then you get a version of the shot from the original movie where the sorority sister who has been suffocated with a plastic bag and is uh, sort of positioned to be looking out a window but nobody can see into that window the dry cleaning bag kill is repeated in all three movies which i thought was kind of interesting it's great it's like required that you get that in yeah <laughs> and in this one they have a they have a body on a roof that no one can see because it's on the fucking roof of this the stone parapet or whatever on top yeah. of this building that moment's so great. and like i i think like there's a few moments where i think the script sort of uh engages in like as someone who's like uh, on Twitter a lot, I'm like, okay, this was like what we were talking about on Twitter two years ago. Like, <laughs> this isn't like you could have used more um, language that would age better. I don't think that's a bad thing. I like. Yeah, I disagree. I like how dated it is. I think specifically Bloomhouse has a way of catching the cultural zeitgeist in the moment because they're rushing things to production and like capitalizing on like specific moments and ideas. So like. The Hunt from this year I thought was kind of interesting as like a time capsule yeah. of like the election cycle um, contention between, you know, the left and the right. Well, more specifically liberals and um, Republicans. Um, and then I'm thinking of like Truth or Dare had like the Snapchat filter quality to it. Those things. OK, they're instantly out of date by the time they even get to theaters. It's like, oh, that was very six months ago when you greenlit this. But. They also, over time, age like wine. Like, in 10, 20 years, when you look back to this time, that's like a cultural temperature check. You know, just like a snapshot of where the culture and the discourse was at that moment. Maybe I just find Twitter discourse really embarrassing, despite the fact that I spend, like, three hours a day on the stupid fucking website. 
Like, maybe just the idea of a Twitter clapback to me is just very embarrassing. And, you know, and, and maybe you're right. We'll have to come back in five years and, and, sit and, uh, and you know, watch the Yeah, I don't think this movie's done like, cooking. You know, Kavanaugh had a really... Kavanaugh did did start one of his, uh, his fucking rambling speeches with, I like beer. <laughs> like, I know SNL made it hacky, but, like... How weird is that? That was genuinely something that happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think this movie's just not done cooking yet. I, that's what I was kind of opening with. Is like I don't, I don't feel like yes. ready to assess this yet because it's just so weighed down with like the moment we're living in that like I feel like five or ten years later it's gonna be a completely different film. Yeah, and like them referencing DMs and stuff. Like I love that kind of technology horror. Like them using a specific terminology that like has now become very common because DMs have a specific cultural... Like, yes, you could send inbox messages to people on Facebook a decade ago, but it didn't have the same sort of cultural weight that saying, oh, you're getting weird DMs has now, where now it's like, you're getting weird DMs means you're getting dick pics, or you're getting weird threats, or you're getting some other sort of male aggressiveness or male violence. And like, I think the execution of the film is actually really remarkably strong and like yeah. tight. And Sophia Takal has like an amazing grasp of like characters and place. And she knows how to draw characters really well. And like, I don't think I have the same sense that I did in the original movie where like I could draw you the house, the, the sorority house. Like I could draw a map of the front of the house. You know, I don't know if I'll get it down to the square inch or whatever, but I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> I could, I could draw you a map of where the windows are. I could draw you all that because the movie uh, Bob Clark did an amazing job there, but I could get you a pretty good picture of what the inside of this house looks like uh, and where everyone's room is because they spend so much time sort of establishing uh, geography with these beautiful long takes and sweeping tracking shots and like, I I, th I I think the movie deserves credit for being remarkably well made over just like, you know, the movie was made fast. The movie was made fast. Like, the movie was fucking made fast. But, like, I don't think that means that everything here is a compromised beast. I think uh, what we actually got is very impressive in terms of execution. Yeah, I think most of the, I mean, I'm not worried about unsubtle satire where I think the movie could have been like, I appreciate the message, but I didn't enjoy the movie if it's, you know, not compelling and not directed well and doesn't feature a lot of good horror movie moments. And I think this movie's great. But uh, it is more in the, like, action surprise than, like, the horrificness of the 2006 one, which I, I like. It's it's bouncy. It's light on its feet. There's and, and still has some very good shocking moments, like when the cop finally springs into action and ends up at the wrong sorority or not the wrong sorority house because that sorority house is under attack too and you realize it's all sororities who are being attacked which again wink wink is also true in real life that's a great moment where he flings the door open and he sees other sorority girls killing other masked people than the ones we've just spent 15 minutes with and then immediately get kills and you gets killed and you realize no hope is coming to our characters. Like those are some great classic thriller horror fake outs done extremely effectively. I'd also throw in the um, mistletoe kiss where like one of the masked killers kisses, I believe Imogen yeah. Poots forcefully under mistletoe. 
one of the most uncomfortable moments in any of these movies, which is saying a lot because the first two that we talked about were a lot more like grotesque and like in your face with how upsetting they are. And specifically R-rated, and that was a moment that, like, I... I Skin crawled. <laughs> did not expect out of a PG-13 movie. Yeah. It's it's very aggressive and very sexual, um, but it's something that I think, unfortunately, deeply, deeply unfortunately, a lot of 13-year-old women can probably identify with. Also, just, like, calls yeah. on the question, like, the whole cultural ritual around kissing under mistletoe and, like, the obligation of that, like... Yeah, something worth interrogating and like tearing down, uh, <laughs> along with all the other things this movie interrogates and tears down. Like it, it's on the right side of history, even if uh, the people watching it in the moment aren't happy with what it has to say. Yeah, I think I think it's a like an overall a really really solid movie that like hits you know the satirical points I I enjoy. It hits some really good action beats. Like it has twists that truly surprised me. Like. I was both engaged as a, as a movie and then engaged as like a as the message behind the movie throughout. It's great. Can I also really quickly the uh, one thing I appreciate about this movie and it's something that um I actually noticed in Django Unchained. An interesting thing about Django Unchained is that uh violence against black men in that movie is uh, almost all off-screen. And something that you don't notice until you hear that and you're like, no, that's not true. And then you watch the movie and you're like, okay, like that was something Tarantino said. I'm not going to fetishize this. I'm going to have violence against black men, particularly men that are um, under slavery, largely off screen. It was a choice he made. In this movie, most of the violence is uh, on screen is against the frat guys um, and they have that black blood. Most of the violence against women in this is like you get the first uh, movement of of a piece of violence, so you know you understand out. what's happening, and then it moves away. It's it, it, Sophia Takal purposefully chose to not fetishize violence against women, and that's like a weird way to like she her saying like there's plenty of horror movies where you get to see women <laughs> get dismembered. This movie is yeah. not fucking about that. Wait till you get to the third act. Well, and also she didn't counterbalance it by still appearing in the movie with an Australian accent to say the N-word of Black <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she didn't she didn't come in and then say a bunch of misogynistic phrases in in like a Bulgarian accent or something. <laughs> she she wasn't hoping for things to like even out. Like I'm not gonna show violence against black men. But I would like to be in the movie and say really racist stuff that I can't say outside of a movie set. Also, like the, a lot of the complaints that would come towards a movie like this is like, well, it's undercutting the legacy of the original, which even a year out, I would say is like so quantifiably incorrect. You know, two years ago, I wrote about Black Christmas and I wrote about how it's like not quite a household name the way that like a movie like Halloween is um, as far as like establishing like what a slasher is. And I would say this year in 2020, a year after Sophia Takal's movie came out, I'm seeing more and more people watch Black Christmas and just like talk about the film and just feels like if anything, it's boosted and like underlined and highlighted the legacy of Bob Clark's movie while not just retracing its steps. Well, also, we know we know that Bob Clark didn't feel that way, right? Because he participated in the first remake. Yeah. 
uh, actively. And I gotta say, I, I'm I'm hearing y'all talk about these two remakes, and I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit this late in the conversation that I loved the 2006 one even more than the 2019 remake. Um. <laughs> you don't have to be embarrassed. Both, all Black Christmas are yeah. good. It might be not all men, but it is all Black Christmas. Uh, the sort of messy, I don't even know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to throw every idea I have at the screen quality of the 2006 one um, speaks to my sensibilities. But I did appreciate all three of these movies in their own right. And I think they all stand individually they could all have three different titles and remove that dry cleaning bag kill and maybe a couple rocking chair shots. And they would be three completely distinct films that didn't really need to reference each other, but whatever gets yeah. these things funded so that people can have their individual visions like this, like made it, I'm totally on board with. And I, I enjoyed the experience. Yeah, like Silent Night, Deadly Night for initiation. Well, and Peter and I just spent a whole summer talking about this, right? We did a, double month on we love to watch of horror remakes and it's a long list and and peter and i think mine's thesis at the end of all that and at the beginning but also at the end um we changed not at all but we watched a lot of good (laughs) movies uh which was that like in most cases it's best to grab a premise grab some moments and make your own movie that we we didn't have any objection to the concept of remakes of classics in any capacity. And basically their success was based on either how effective they were at fixing an original that had good ideas but didn't was, didn't come together in a cohesive or satisfying way or taking a concept and going in a different direction with it. Like that was where success came from in horror remakes. And I think both of these remakes do that they take the sorority they take the christmas they take the killer and they make their own movies around those pieces and i mean that's that's how you get successful remakes you're not going to top the original like you can't just make why would anyone need to remake black christmas beat for beat it's basically a perfect horror movie you're not going to top the ending you're not going to re-surprise people with what it's going for and also you don't need to because Black Christmas is one of the most influential horror movies of all time, too. So, like, all those things that you liked in those movies have been remade over and over and over again for 30 years. So taking the concept and going in different directions, I think uh, this is a really good example of one where that has been incredibly successful. And unfortunately, I think two movies that, for whatever reason, have been really unfairly dismissed. You don't necessarily know the value of something until uh, much later, right? Um, and I'm hoping that Black Christmas uh, 2019 is a movie that continues to gather value. I'm hoping that uh, as we get further away from that very strange era of glossy, gross movies of the mid-2000s, that we can gain more appreciation for Black Christmas. And uh, I'm happy that the original Black Christmas is getting recognition from all sorts of writers. And I've read a lot of, there's a lot of really good writing and and, uh, podcasting um, from women talking about how they don't feel necessarily seen by horror movies directed by men and how the original Black Christmas feels like to them a feminist film. So I, I won't give it necessarily that label because it's not really my place to do so, but that's that's been something that's been fascinating for me is like a movie I watched because it was scary when I was 13 and then I've watched every few years and every few years like I get a little bit smarter <laughs> a little bit more aware at least maybe not smarter and uh the original movie just continues to gain weight and value uh while movies that we freak out about for Oscar season just drift away <laughs> 
I think at the end of it, I would rank them Black Christmas, Black Christmas, Black Christmas. <laughs> Definitive ranking. I think we could all agree on that. Um, <laughs> so for the rest of the month, we have only one more episode because this is coming out the week of Christmas. So I'm going to be recording an episode soon where Boomer and I watch Dr. Sleep, which I had not seen yet Ooh. and he's a huge fan of. Good I'm a huge fan of the movie. Me too. Okay, yeah. so I'm excited. To We're going to talk that. about Doctor Sleep in the sa- in the movie that releases on our podcast that week too. Spoilers, spoilers, because we're doing our best of 2019, I think. And our one, uh, the week after that Doctor Sleep episode should be our best of 2020. So that, that's what we've got for the rest of the year. Um, what, what have y'all got coming up besides your best 2019 wrap up? Because I know you're still in the middle of like cursed Christmas. Yeah. So depending <laughs> when this comes out, this will probably if this comes out Christmas. Then on this same feed, if you're listening on the We Love to Watch feed, if you're listening on the Swamp Fix feed, you have to go to our feed to hear us talk about Brandon's favorite movie of all time, Ron Howard's Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, um, which we talk about for three hours unedited. Uh, We have a lot of thoughts about that movie. That movie is uh, the definition of a mainstream cursed Christmas movie, and we have... Uh, if you go back on our feed, we have uh, we're also talking about the search for Santa Paws, which is the tenth Airbud sequel. <laughs> uh, we're talking about Christmas with the Cranks, which is the bad Tim Allen Christmas movie. And if you've seen Santa Claus Three, you know what that means when I call it the bad one. Uh, and mix nuts. Uh, and then in uh, yeah January, looking ahead after so uh, our best of 2019, uh, it's nice that we don't have competing best of year thing because we've decided to do this completely bizarre <laughs> way to do our best best of but um uh, january we're doing uh, a lovecraft month talking about color out of space and uh, underwater and a few other movies we're Ooh, really fresh about. lovecraft yeah and uh, have you seen underwater i Brandon? saw it in the theater in 2020 believe Me it or too. not what a rare treat <laughs> Me too. and i i wasn't even in my car yet i was walking to the parking garage and i'm like peter you gotta see underwater <laughs> Y'all were in my thoughts. It wasn't not like a highlight of the year for me personally, but I did enjoy it. And I was thinking like, wow, this will be on the We Love to Watch podcast someday. <laughs> yeah, you were right. We knew it at the moment. Uh, yeah. So we're doing some Lovecraft stuff. And I can tell you, all those episodes are really good because we have already recorded them all. Yes. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, we can give a little peek in February. We're doing another Groundhog Day month. Um, so films about time loops. Um, so that's going to be a lot Are you of keeping the current cinema in the rotation for that and doing Palm Springs next year? We're doing Palm Springs kicks off of the month. So yeah, we already did Wonderful. it. Wonderful. Yeah. It's it's actually the most traditional one of the movies we're doing because it, you know, binds itself to the Let day. Let me insert myself in the conversation a little bit. I love that yeah. it acknowledges that we all know what that premise is and it does not yes. waste any time in jumping like midstream. <laughs> you know? And it also, it, it saves us, it gets us to a sub 90 minute runtime. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> uh, which means I've now watched that movie three times since it came out because I was just, because it, when it's sub 90 minutes and it's charming and sweet, I'm just like, yeah, do it again. Well, speaking of runtimes, we are at uh, three hours. Raw well, hold on, right hold on. As long as we're talking all the way. Hold on. One last thing, Brandon, because you will be on. It'll be one of the next episodes we record, actually, because we've recorded all of January and February. You're going to be on our podcast in March talking about the movie, according to Letterboxd, I've watched the most, at least since I've started tracking Letterboxd in the last five years. And I think one of your favorite movies of the past five years, too. Uh, Brigsby Bear? Brigsby Bear. 
I can't think of a better time to talk about a movie wherein someone sits isolated in their bedroom and watches content that only they care about on loop <laughs> as the world moves on without them outside. Like, yeah, I'm very excited. Well, that's actually, I mean, the, the theme, even though it's coming in March, which I guess will be somewhat of a brighter side, hopefully, than the, the rest of this year has been, but it's I Need a Hug Month about movies like that that uh, make you feel happy after a lot of crying. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. Hell one. yeah, me too. Um, and I'm excited to listen to all those episodes. I, I listen to your show religiously. I encourage anyone who listens to the Swampflix podcast to also check out We Love to Watch. Yeah, and same if you're listening on the We Love to Watch feed. Uh, Brandon's guested a bunch of times. He's one of our favorite people, and his podcast is uh, fantastic. Well, uh, I'll talk to you all soon about a different yeah, movie. Bl- Black Christmas, I gave you my heart. <laughs> Literally. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Happy holidays and take care of yourselves. Up in the frat house, me and you, and we know what I'm there to do. We're drinking and kissing, and what comes next? You and I have SPX. But ho, 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 I didn't know. Ho, 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 I didn't know. Up in the frat house, there's one true fact, and that is that I got attacked. Things went down, and I'm telling everyone in town. Did lady want for goodness sake? Couldn't have, cause I was not awake. Ho, 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 I didn't know. Ho, 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 I didn't know. Cause up in the front house,